No matter what storms we face, we can hide in the cleft of the rock. And God will be through those storms with us. He doesn't always take us out of those storms when we want him to, does he? But he does go through them with us. And we can hide in him and his protection through those storms. Well, we finished up our series on the Gospel of John and early Acts. We got to the point that I wanted to. Where we saw, we actually saw God using his disciples for his glory through the power, through the power of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, doing powerful things through them, giving them boldness for proclamation that, that we have access to today as well. I had been praying, obviously, about what to do next. And eventually, I think we are going to do a series on Revelation. But the Lord, through a number of circumstances, brought me my brought my attention to a little book in Old Testament called Habakkuk. Yes, there is a book called Habakkuk. Um, we're not going. You can you can put your finger in that book. We're not going to be in that book a lot today. This is kind of it's not really an introduction. It's kind of a message all in of itself, but it will help us prepare us for a series on Habakkuk. And this this message this morning has been something that's been God's been just working in my heart. I think for a while now, as we saw in, in Sunday school, we saw um, the, the, the biblical answer to the trials that we face and the sufferings that we go through and the things that God allows into our lives where we just kind of look at sometimes and say, I, I don't get this at all. This doesn't make any sense to me why God would be doing this. And so... The answer to that is to wait and to trust. But sometimes things get so difficult that we question. And so the question, the first question is, is it okay to question God? Now, let's be honest, we've all done it. <clears throat> we all have things, again, like I just said, where we weren't expecting doesn't make sense to us. And we say, why God? Why is a pretty common question. But there's other questions to ask as well. And I should say up front, this is a message for those, for the children of God, those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And if there's still someone, even within the sound of my voice today, who knows they don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, then all of this won't make much sense to you. You need to put your faith and trust in him and what Jesus has done in his atoning sacrifice on the cross. Turn to him. Turn from your sin and experience the peace and the confidence and the strength that is ours that God gives only to his children, as we'll see today. If you haven't done that, I plead with you to do that. Come talk to me afterwards, and we can show you from God's word how you can know that you're saved through a relationship with Jesus Christ. But believers... This addresses our communication with God, but specifically in the midst of situations that we don't understand or that we never expected God would allow into our lives. And first of all, folks, the overarching principle in all of this I'm saying today is that understand this. God is always ready to hear from us. That is key. 
regardless of what you're saying to him, God is ready to hear from us. We can go to him at any time with our burdens. It's one of the beautiful, marvelous things about our relationship with God. He's always ready, regardless even of our attitude sometimes, to hear at any time what we have to say to him. And that is something that we have to remember. And God privileges, we have a privilege actually, in a way even that the Old Testament people did not have, that he freely allows us to ask questions of him. So that kind of answers the first question, right? We're going to see from God's word, yes, he does allow us to ask questions. There were many of his servants throughout the Old Testament that asked questions of God. Um, but at the same time, as we ask those questions, that privilege is governed by expectations from God as we ask those things. Is it okay even to ask God why? Well, I think in, certain, in many circumstances, yes. I think we can go to God because when, when we struggle and we go through things that are so hard that we weren't expecting or that are painful to us, it's just it's almost like a knee-jerk reaction. If I can say that, it's a natural thing to say why. And I believe God allows us to do that. This is a side note. I think it's okay. I think it's perfectly acceptable to ask why questions of God's word. Because I'm, I'm confident that whatever why question anybody asks of God's word, that there is an answer, folks. Now, what the problem is, is that it might, um, it might interrupt or it might go against our interpretation of Scripture. And we always have to make sure that we, in our interpretation of Scripture, have it submitted to the Word of God if He gives us more understanding. Many times the why question comes from an emotional sense of, Lord, why are you letting this happen in my life? And God allows us to ask the why question, but He calls us to the right heart attitudes as we discuss with Him our concerns and cares and fears. Folks, isn't this a beautiful truth? We come to God as we are. But we must not expect that God will leave us there. God's going to work in us. He's going to change us. We come as we are, but don't get angry with God when he starts working that change. Or maybe he gives us an answer that we weren't quite expecting. Trust him. And we will see at some point, maybe it's in eternity, the work that God was doing. A story that I became familiar with was actually a book. We were at, uh, in Maryland at Leslie's parents' house. They had a book entitled To Die as Game. And it was about a couple, a missionary couple, Charles and Stephanie Wesco. This couple um, had come, I believe, from conservative Christian circles, and they had gone to college together. Um, well, actually, he was a little bit older than her, and uh, they met as he was doing ministry after <laughs> during his college years. And um, God, through several years of prayer, brought these two young people together, and they were searching what God wanted them to do, and it then became apparent, again, after a number of years of, of serving God faithfully, that he wanted them to be missionaries with their eight children to Cameroon, Africa, right? And folks, this was only in 2018 when in the midst of the unrest that still is there today, 
they were confident that God had called them. After an initial survey trip, they did the things that they were supposed to do as, as um, missionary um, potentials. And they said, God's called us there. They arrived in late October 2018. And as you read through this book, they were obviously the family. And Charles and Stephanie were overjoyed to be there. You could, you could tell in her writing, she's like, God, we're where God wants us to be. We're finally here. They're excited. Every new experience they would share with their kids, even things about um, you know, uh, creatures that would pop up, snakes and spiders. And folks, you know, it's God's work in the life of, um, say, thankfully that she's or, or overjoyed about the fact that her son just caught a new species of spider that he'd never seen before. I mean, that's God's work. That's God's work for us men, too, a lot of times. But they were just thrilled and excited about what God was doing. Well, they were there two weeks. And they were going to go to one of the major cities there in Cameroon. And there was some unrest and some of the people that were with them uh, that were more, more experienced said, you better not go to the town, to the city today. And so they decided to go to one of the local towns, to the market where they could get their food, things like that. And one of their missionary companions was driving um, the car as they were getting used to things. They'd only they'd been there less than two weeks. Um, out of the eight children, they chose one of their boys, who was, I believe, about 10 years old, to ride with them. And they're um, driving to this village. Um, they're going through some military checkpoints. Because, again, because of the unrest, they were being constantly careful. And um, the Stephanie, who wrote the book, gave testimony that she was watching somebody go by on a bike. And they turned a corner on this road. And all of a sudden, the side window was sprayed with gunshot fire. And she immediately took her son and pushed him down. And, her first thought were, was, okay, I think whatever that was, everybody's okay. And she was trying to get her, just her wits back about her, and her 10-year-old son just cried out, Mom, Dad's been shot. And she looked over, and her husband had received bullet wounds in the head and in the chest, and he was slouched over. And she pulled him over to her, as they quickly, the driver went to one of the checkpoints and said, we have somebody who's been shot. And they got him to the local medical facilities, the hospital, as quickly as they could. And in less than 24 hours, Charles was with the board. What do you do about that? When you hear that story, I'm sure each of you have many why questions. Folks, as somebody that knows people that have served in Cameroon, and even during that time period, I have my own set of why questions about that, that entire situation. Certainly, why with this family that was overjoyed and being where God called them to do, why would this, what was the purpose of this? Eight children. And now this woman has to get them back out immediately, back out of Africa and back home. Well, I know this. I know in the midst of this story that Stephanie Wesco and Charles weren't asking the why questions when God called them. They were asking another question. And that was what? What does God want us to do? Stephanie wrote this book, and she's actually now in a ministry with several friends. Because of that experience, left her with a type of PTSD syndrome. 
that she had to struggle through for many months, and now she is in a ministry helping others and sharing the gospel with PTSD victims all over the country. God is still using her. But it doesn't always answer the why questions, does it? And folks, in one sense, we're never going to get all the answers to the why questions. So is there even a point in asking why? Well, I think there is. But first of all, the why questions must be submitted to God's expectations. Now, get your fingers ready, okay? We're going to go through a lot of scripture very quickly this morning. And we, we uh, kind of left off in Job in Sunday school. So go back to Job at this point. Job chapter 31. And we're going to look at a number of chapters here. And the first aspect of this why question in submitting to God's expectations is that we must not demand or accuse God when we ask why. Now, we saw this morning, and we were left in Job chapter 13. Uh, I think out of all the people, if we were to ask um, somebody that we would say would legitimately, would have a legitimate reason to ask the why question, would it not be Job? I mean, he lost everything. Pretty much, except for his wife, and she was so embittered that, let's be honest, she wasn't much help. Right? We know that. And yet, what does Scripture say? That Job did not sin or curse God. I saw in Job 13, as we read this morning, that he was leaving things in the hands of God. But, folks, his friends began to press him more and became to be more and more annoying and hurtful to him as they tried to pin on him some sort of a hypocritical fact that Job had to be being punished for his sins. Now, Job, on the other hand, has been justly proclaiming his righteousness throughout the book. Job was never claiming perfection. Let's be clear about that. But as the accusation of his friends continue to be more and more intense, you're being punished for your sin, Job, and we know it. Job is simply stating that he has committed no sin would cause God to judge him in this manner. And we would all assent to the fact that that is true. Job didn't commit. It was, it was a supernatural um, situation between Satan and, and God, and God allowed all of that to take place. Satan always has to go before God to get permission before he does what he wants to do. Don't forget that. And we see that in the book of Job. But as Job makes his final defense... He's finally strained to the point where he does finally cross the line. And it's subtle. But what he says is, he demands an answer from God. And again, I want to tread carefully, because none of us have been through what Job has been through. All right? We almost tend to say, hey, whatever Job wants to do at this point is okay, because look at all that he went through. But God says later on that Job was deficient. God says that. And I think this is where we find that. He demands an answer, and folks, he subtly accuses God of a wrong indictment against him in this matter. Basically, Job says, someone's wrong in this, and it's not me. So who does that leave? Look at Job 31, verse 35. Oh, that I had one to hear me. And he's been asking God to hear him. And he says, here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I have the indictment written by my adversary. He's basically saying, I already have my document of innocence written and signed. And whatever, whoever, I'm praying to God, so it's obviously him, but whoever would indict me, I have my document that certifies that I'm righteous, and surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown. 
I would give him, God, an account of all my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. Job has finally gotten to the point where he's most close to accusing God, saying, I'm righteous, Lord, but you in this matter? A friend of mine, seminary professor, Dr. Leighton Talbert from Bob Jones, has a wonderful book on Job. I highly recommend it, uh, Beyond Suffering. He describes it like this. Job has grown increasingly confident of his innocence and the, the apparent unfairness of his suffering. He is fairly full of himself in these closing moments of his final defense. That Job does step over the line at some point is beyond dispute because God himself rebukes Job for doing so. And we'll see that in just a second. It is suggested that God never rebukes Job for pride. Nor does he correct Job for self-righteousness per se. He censors Job for defending his own righteousness over and against and at the expense of God's righteousness. If it is a question of one of us being righteous, Job says in essence, I know I am, and God knows that I am too. The insinuation is every bit as offensive to God as Job's friends' insinuations were to Job. Job was righteous. When he started crossing the line and then accusing God of somehow not being righteous, he was wrong in his why question. Why are you allowing this, God? Why will you not speak to me? Well, God does come to Job in his time. And he does speak to Job. Job chapter 40. God's own timing. And if you've read through this, you know. He responds to Job in a dramatic fashion. A whirlwind or tornado comes through. And he has some things to say to Job. He makes it clear, Job, you've had over 30 chapters. Now, the book wasn't written yet. Multiple defenses to say what you want. Now, it's, it's my turn. And I'm going to say what needs to be said. And you prepare yourself, Job, for a cosmic examination. My boys love school. One of the highlights is tests and quizzes. Isn't it, guys? They know. Well, they're not our favorites either. But how about when God gives you the test? And he says, prepare yourself. And, and it doesn't sound like he's being very sensitive here. He says, basically, prepare yourself, man, Job, and take my test. And Job has put God's ways and character into question by defending his own righteousness at the expense of God. And what God reminds Job here is that one who is incapable, listen to this, one who is incapable of doing what God can do ought to be more careful in his critique of God's ways, right? As God gives this cosmic quiz and just quizzes him about some of his, um, some of his creation. And we don't have time to look at all of it. Look, look at chapter 40, verse 6, all right? Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. Prepare yourself to be a man. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be right? And there God pinpoints Job's problem. Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger. And look on everyone who is proud and abase him. 
Uh, skip ahead to verse 13. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then when you can, when you have able to accomplish things, and the whole point of this, Job obviously understands, he has no capability of doing any of this. This is all God's power. And so God says, then I will acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. It's almost as if Job was in the end depending upon his own righteousness. Folks, one of the things about asking questions is before we demand, we shouldn't demand answers from God. Before we, we are tempted to do that and we start into that, just take a minute and look at his creation. Go out in the evening and look at the stars. The stars are so beautiful and so clear in many portions of New Hampshire. I have pictures on, on Instagram of the planets and of different sources where they show God's creation, the planets and things. And it just blows me away how amazing and all these incredibly co cosmic and magnificent things that God has created that we still have literally almost no knowledge about. We don't even know everything that's in our own seas here on our own planet, finding stuff all the time. Folks, we have to be very careful in demanding answers from God when we realize how insignificant and finite we are. And Job needed to do that in the end, even with the things that he suffered. And that will give us and put us in a more humble frame of mind, which is where we need to be when we ask the why questions. Well, he gives him a question, a quiz about some what may be dinosaurs and some different creations that Job obviously had no answers for. He couldn't answer these things. Job does get the point at the end, by the way. Skip ahead to Job 42. And here, Job has the correct response. Are we allowed to ask why questions? Yes, but it must always be with these attitudes. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that, you now he's repeating what God has questioned him. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Um, Lord, here's my answer. I have uttered what I do not understand. Thanks too wonderful for me, which I, I did not know. Here was God's second question to him. Here I will speak and I will question you and you make it known to me. Lord, here's my answer. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear and now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Humility, folks, and repentance for our pride. When we get angry with God and we demand that he answer us and we forgive our, um, our case to him, expecting that somehow he was wrong in the matter, God will remind us as his children that he is bigger than us, that he has things in, in ways that we don't have any understanding of. And so we must repent of that attitude and humble ourselves before him. Job got the point. And here is his key realization. This is hard for us, but Job finally came to this point. God's sovereignty allows him to do anything in our lives that he chooses. We have a hard time with that because there's a lot of things that God allows. When we say, God, that doesn't make sense to me. I don't really like that. But Job, in the, and Job said that too. But Job in the end says, God, you're sovereign. You get to do what you want with my life. And I just submit to this truth. His faith in God finally trumps faith in himself. Job now trusts in God's righteousness fully over his own. That's where we need to be when the really hard things come. 
We must, first of all, not demand or accuse. Job repented of that. Second of all, we must commit to God's ways instead of our own. Turn to Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah has been called many times a weeping prophet, but I could say this a little tongue-in-cheek. You can kind of call him the complaining prophet sometimes. <laughs> There's a lot of complaints that he gives to God. And if you're going to complain to anybody, folks, just go straight to God. Don't tempt the rest of us. <laughs> go to God with it. But at the same time, understand that God's going to give you answers for that complaint. Well, Jeremiah has a complaint here. In Jeremiah chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 is just one of those. And here is what Jeremiah does. He acknowledges that God's ways are right. But he also admits that they always don't make sense to him. And Jeremiah would like to um, suggest or advise some alternatives to God's operating procedures. Let's look at this. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. He's saying, Lord, I know you're righteous. I know your ways are right. I'm not going to argue with that. You are righteous. Well, that's good. Yet I would plead my cause before you. Yet I have something that I want to talk to you about. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all those who are treacherous thrive? You plant them and they take root. They grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth and far from their heart. But you, O Lord, know me. You see me and test my heart toward you. Common complaint, right, that many of us have. Lord, why do all these people around me that have rejected you and are wicked, why do they seem to prosper? And you know my heart. You know my love and devotion for you. And that just seems like a lot of times I can't get ahead. It just seems like I'm always struggling. And when we get in those situations, folks, don't we kind of come up with our own ideas about how, what God should do in our lives? And we get frustrated with God, and maybe sometimes we think, I'm not really going to fully serve you, God, until you start doing things my way. Well, here's Jeremiah's way. Here's his suggestion for God. Now, he's talking here about the people around him. At this point, he is ministering in a small ministry setting. At this point, early in the book, in, in a village that he came from. And he's looking at his own countrymen and saying, these are wicked people, Lord. And here's what you need to do. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of slaughter. Here's my advice. Deal with them, Lord. Wipe them out. They're disobedient. Well, obviously, Jeremiah is a little um, short on the mercy side on this thing. He's frustrated. But, folks, aren't you glad, by the way, that God doesn't deal in the way that Jeremiah advises? Because do you remember last week what Peter said? That all of us are those disobedient people. We're all responsible for putting Jesus on the cross because of our sin. And if God was going to take Jeremiah's advice, we'd all be in trouble. So, Lord, forget what Jeremiah said. <laughs> you act on your character. And God reminds him. Jeremiah gets a response. I'm sure he wasn't expecting this. Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 5 through 6. This is God's response to him. If you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? Jeremiah, if you can't even handle the foot race, wait till we see what I have next for you. There's no way you can handle that. If you're going to complain now about the race in its easy stage, just wait, wait till things get really difficult. It's going to get Basically, what God's saying is, here's his response. Jeremiah, it's going to get a whole lot worse than what you realize. <laughs> you better strengthen yourself up. 
And by the way, is he telling him to find strength in himself? No. God has already told Jeremiah at the beginning of the book that he, just like he told Joshua, that he would give him the strength. So God is saying here, I will give you the strength to not be weary, to continue on, so don't give up. And if in a safe land you are so trusting, what will you do in the thick of Jordan? You're just in small town ministry right now, Jeremiah. One day you're going to minister the whole of my people in Jerusalem, and then you're going to have a much expanded, much wider ministry. Things aren't going to get any better. And by the way, Jeremiah, things are even worse right now than you realize. For even your brothers in the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. They are in full cry after them. Do not believe them, though they speak friendly words to you. God, I'm really tired of what you're allowing in my life. Well, it's actually worse than you thought, Jeremiah. Your own family's against you, and they're being hypocritical. They're saying nice things to you when they're with you, and they're against you behind your back. So don't believe them. Believe me. What is God saying to Jeremiah? Depend on me for strength to serve faithfully. Don't live your life holding back. I think there's many times where Jeremiah gets to the point where he says, God, I'm just, I'm just going to take a rest for a while. I'm just, I'm tired. Remember one time he said, I'm done. I'd be, I, I'd be done preaching your word, Lord, except for the fact that you won't allow me. You continue to move your word forward through me. I think there's many times where Jeremiah just said, I'm done. I just want to quit for a while. And God says, no, you keep going. Even though you don't understand everything I'm allowing in your life, trust me in my plan. I'm not going to follow your plan. I am the sovereign God. God has the full view of our lives that it is impossible for us to have. We just don't have that. God knows better than we do, folks. And many times part of our problem is, is that we just need to stop trying to steer God or give him advice. Humility lets him do what he wants to do in our lives. It's a hard lesson to learn, but it's so important. Remember Elizabeth Elliot, the widow of Jim Elliot, and the group of men that went down to Ecuador and all that that happened. I won't get into the whole story today because I'm pretty sure you're familiar with it. Reed actually reads on here today. He met Elizabeth Elliot. Many years ago, she ended up after the death of her husband and spending more time, amazingly, in that same with those same people that killed her husband had ministry to them for a couple of years before she finally moved up here to New Hampshire. And she lived the rest of her life writing books. You've ever, uh, if you've not read any of her books, again, the only book I totally recommend is God's Word. Elizabeth, Elizabeth Elliot has written some wonderful books that talk about. Um, trust and faith in God in the midst of really difficult things. And God brought Elizabeth Elliot. Um, there's a new book that I would recommend with reservations, but it's still very valuable. It's her biography. It's the first half of her life by a woman named Ellen Vaughn. It's called Becoming Elizabeth Elliot. And one of the main things that Ellen Vaughn stresses in her biography is that Elizabeth Elliot never or stopped asking the why question early on in her life because there were no good answers in her mind. How do you give a good answer to your husband who wants to give the gospel to um, this group of savage um, natives and he and his friends are killed? And so Elizabeth Vaughn says about Elizabeth Elliot, she says, we just don't have enough transcendent dimensions in our brains to comprehend the mysterious sovereign 
quantum workings of God that emanate from eternity past for the purposes of his glory for eternity future. To opine about what God is up to in terms of results can stray into the realm of hubris or faithlessness. If we must see that there are worthy results in order to come to peace about what God has done or allowed, then we have not faith. That might be a little extreme. I might say that our faith is shallow. But to demand an answer from God or we won't serve him or we won't serve him with all our hearts is certainly a shallow faith. Well, what is the right response? Well, folks, that is what the study in Habakkuk is going to tell us. And it has to do with even what Rick mentioned this morning upon waiting upon the Lord. Habakkuk also asks some why questions that are kind of along the lines of Jeremiah. And God gives him some straightforward answers. One of his, he says, how long must we wait until you deal with our people's sin? Just like Jeremiah asked. But then here's what Habakkuk does. In asking the question, he remembers the stated truth of God's character. And when he's finished, he returns to his station, his watchtower. We saw that word this morning. And he waits for God's answer. And he knows that in God's timing, that he'll get an answer. And he does. But he waits on the Lord. Job, through all the things that he went through, got to a point where he was demanding an answer from God. Habakkuk, we're going to see, has some very direct questions for God. They're why questions, but then he says, Lord, now I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait on you and wait for your answer and wait for your leading. When we ask the why question, we need to be ready to wait on the Lord and wait on his timing. And not expect that the answer is going to be something that we do expect. It may surprise us. But God will direct us in the way that he wants. Remember, the why question is legitimate when asked with the right attitude. Children have a hard time with this, right? They ask a lot of why questions. And you can tell really quick what the attitude is behind it. If it's an answer, if it's a question about why something works, why does this do this? Why does this do this? Well, that's obviously, that's just an inquiry to understand their world more. Why, you know, does this... You know, a wire um, and this electricity travel through it, and how does this work? And, and Dad, how does this work? And, you know, you try to do the best you can with answering those questions, right, guys? But there's another type of why question that's why? Why, Dad? Why do I have to do that? That's not inquiry, that's blaming, right? That's demanding. I'm not going to do what you've asked me to do unless you give me a good reason for it. And folks, let's be honest, many times when we ask why, that's our attitude. That's what needs to change so that we're not children demanding answers from God, but we wait in his timing. There is another question, and that is the question, the what question. Turn quickly to John 21. We're almost done here, but Peter is going to give us... And even as uh, Peter, Roy, this morning read from First Peter, we're going to see Peter gives us the answer on how to respond to really difficult things in our lives. Thinking just recently about a number of situations that I'm aware of, you know, um, I mentioned to you already the story about the 
the missionary couple of the West Coast. I know a couple friends of mine that have given their whole lives to ministry. They're in their last years of, of ministry together, and they've helped families um, and had numerous effects on, on many young people over the years. And they're dealing with their adult child now almost turning away from God. And there's a lot of why. As I talk to them, it's like, yeah, Lord, why would you, why would you allow that? Faithful couple. Um, you know, we, we, I've dealt with teens and young people so many times. And uh, young people that have great homes and have a mom and dad. Others that... Their parents get divorced early on and they look around and, says, and they say, everybody else has a mom. Everybody else has a dad. Why don't I get one? I'm just a single parent. My mom raised me here. My dad raised me. Why, God? I don't trust you when I don't have these answers. We all understand that there are things that challenge what we know as far as waiting from God. But, folks, we have to trust him, right? And this is the question we really need to ask. The what question reflects submission to God's expectations, but it must be asked with committed submission. Now, as we finish up here, you remember this story, right? John 21. Remember Jesus' response to John? We've just recently been through this, right? It should be fresh on your mind. He gives, uh, he gives I'm sorry, Peter, John's the book, but Jesus, after he deals with Peter in his denial and asking him three times, will, uh, will you feed my sheep? Peter agrees, love my sheep. But then he says this, truly, truly, I say to you when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you did not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this to him, he said to him, follow me. And we all remember that that was basically Jesus was giving him a hint that it, that his life would end in death, crucifixion. And Peter wasn't real thrilled about that, as you can imagine. What was his response? He turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. That was John following them, the one who had also leaned back against him during the supper. Okay. When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Peter says, wait a minute, Lord. Why do I have to go through that? I, I'm ready to follow you, but man. This almost sounds like you're talking about crucifixion. What, what does John have to go through? And Jesus, and Jesus loved Peter, right? Jesus loves all of us. With that loving, caring response here. And it was probably unexpected, though. Jesus said to him, if it is my will and he remains until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Jesus, a short and sweet response. Peter, that's not your business. You follow me. You let me tell you. I'm not going to answer all your why questions, Peter. You just commit to following me. Trust and obey, just like we sang today, right? You just keep asking, Lord, what is the next step? As they're walking together, you ask me what the next step is that I want you to take, and I'll gladly ask that question. You see, that's the what question that we need to do in the end answer. Elizabeth Elliott came to that realization early on in her life. I'll read you some more from this new biography. As we measure out our lives stuck in the now, 
We must choose whether to trust God or not, to follow him or not, obey him or not. And if we choose to trust, follow, and obey, the measure of our success is not how things turn out in this life. This is so important. Nor in our understanding all the cogs and wheels and machinations of just what God is doing. A close and fretful inquiry into how spiritual things work is an exercise in futility, said Elizabeth, having fretted her way through many a woe. No, listen, the only problem to be solved really is that of obedience. As Betty noted, futility, that spirit-numbing sense of despair, does not come from the thing itself, but from the demand to know why. It is the endless question of the child. For Betty, the adult question is, what? As in, Lord, show me what you want me to do, and I'll do it. And in that acceptance, I'll obey whatever it is, that's where there's peace. That's what God intended. Did Peter ever learn that lesson? Let's quickly, as we end here, Let's go to 1 Peter, the very scripture that was read this morning, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. Peter did learn his lesson very well. He stopped asking those why questions. Filled with the spirit and mature in ministry, now Peter has an entirely different response to the trials. Remember, this is a man that knows that he's going to die and be murdered. He may even understand that he's going to be crucified. This is the man that's writing this. Verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You can put an exclamation point there. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Folks, that's a guarantee of our own resurrection because Jesus was resurrected from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. That's wonderful, but Peter acknowledges there are hard times. And this is a man who knows he still has harder things to face. In this you rejoice, though now for a while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor and revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter knows now that trials bring refinement and maturity and genuineness. And in the end, what is he saying? He's saying, folks, I know that we go through difficult things, but you just wait. You wait till Jesus returns. The end is going to be so much better. It'll be worth it. So you wait. You endure. I'm going to endure. I'm about to face some difficult things. But as I look at what I have in Christ, I'm confident the end of my story and the end of your story is magnificent. That's where we get the motivation 
to move on, to serve God faithfully when things get really hard. So that even Habakkuk, at the end of his questions, what does he say in Habakkuk 3, 17 through 19? Though the fig tree shall not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. He is saying here, no matter what hard things happen, I will joy because I know my God is in control. And he will be victorious. Another quote from my friend, Dr. Tower: to believe God with or without evidence simply because he has spoken, to submit to God with or without understanding because he is both sovereign and good, and to worship God with or without reward because he is worthy, delivers to the believer a peace that surpasses understanding and baffles unbelievers, instructs angels, and glorifies God. That's what God does with our difficult times as we go through them. So, folks, in conclusion, here's the baggage, if I can put it that way, of the why question asked in the wrong way. Here's how we tend to ask that question. Number one, well, God, there had better be a really good reason for why I'm going through and suffering through what I'm going through right now. And I'm not going to commit to you fully until you give me understanding. We know now that's not the right response. There's another response. God, I need an answer from you now, and I just can't trust enough if I don't get that answer to serve you faithfully. Answer my question or I won't trust you. Or number three, God, are you sure this is best for me? Because I'm not really comfortable with what I'm going through right now. And I have got a way that I think I'd handle this on my own. Many of you know the missionary Amy Carmichael. This is a wonderful quote. There is only one way of victory over the bitterness and rage that comes naturally to us. To will what God wills is to bring peace. Folks, here's where your pastor is on this issue. You may come to me and say, well, Pastor Brock, here's what I'm going through. And I may agree with you. Those are hard. But folks, would it surprise you to know that as your pastor... I have my own list of questions. I have things that God's allowed into my life. I'm like, Lord, I'd like to know why. And I don't have an answer for them. But God, over even recently, has brought back to me the importance of just submitting to him. And folks, by his grace, I'm done giving up trying to figure out why. To make sense of it all. Everything God is doing in my life. I may ask him for clarifications at times, but folks, more often, I'm asking, what do you want me to do? Rather than why. That's where we need to be. Not my will, but thine be done. And don't we have all eternity to figure out all the whys? <laughs> well, it's going to take that long, I think. Serve him lovingly and faithfully now. Lord, Your message is clear. We struggle. We, we go through hard things. We've gone through things as a church family that we've asked questions about why. And had our own answers for. And even talked in such a way, oh, if the Lord would just listen to me. And yet, Lord, I pray that you would help us, remind us again through your word, 
We reminded Job, Jeremiah, Peter, Habakkuk. And we can ask questions, but in the end, we need to be ready to repent, to humble ourselves, and to say, whatever you want, Lord, I'll be willing to do. And then we will be useful tools, really wonderfully useful tools, submitted tools to whatever you would have us to do. Father, we know we, we go through hard things. We all have questions. Help us to submit to you, trust in you, and simply obey, knowing that you have a wonderful, marvelous, magnificent ending for us that we can barely fathom right now. And let us find comfort and encouragement and confidence in that realization and serve you faithfully. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.